Father, thank you for this chance to gather this morning and uh, start diving into this incredible letter of Paul's. Pray that you would um, just bless our study. Would you um, help us to fall more in love with Jesus and to have a better sense of how to apply the work of Christ to our everyday lives? <clears throat> Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're talking about First Corinthians in here. Um, but first, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin by giving a shameless plug for our adult classes. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you are all here. But I think it's helpful every now and then to just stop and consider why do we spend an hour before our service each time. Does anyone know what our mission statement is? Could anyone say the Redeemer mission statement offhand? This is a good test. That's a different no, church. That's a different church. Helping each other know and follow Jesus. Helping each other know and follow Jesus. Um, and one of the foundational aspects of our life in Christ that we are called to be holy and faithful in is in the area of thought. Spiritual growth requires transformation of our whole lives, including our minds. And it's not only that, we need to grow in our affections and our skills in many other ways, but how we think as Christians is very important. Biblical clarity is a necessary precursor to biblical fidelity. Um, so I think the classroom is one of the best places to cultivate that part of our Christian growth. Um, there's so many topics and, and areas of study in the Christian life that, um, you know, the more kind of monologue nature of this and the motivational nature of the, the pulpit, um, and the more relational nature of a community group um, just can't do as well as like a classroom setting. And so we need all of those things, the pulpit the most important, but all of them help us in our growth. So we are doing uh, 12 weeks on 1 Corinthians. Um, the upstairs one, of course, will be 12 weeks as well. So that'll take us almost through August. Have any of you studied 1 Corinthians in depth before? Anyone here? No? All right. Um, I'm really excited for it. All right. So this is what I want to talk about today. Just this today is like an introduction to the letter, some of the background of it, um, and then we'll then I'll show you kind of how we're going to work our way through the letter um, uh, towards the end. So we'll look at the city of Corinth, the culture of Corinth, the church of Corinth, and the letter to the church of Corinth. All right, so Corinth, the city of Corinth. Has anyone ever been to Corinth by any chance? Dan and Debbie have, so I wanted to ask if anyone else has. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. City of Corinth. All right, so um, let's see. Um, just kind of the putting Corinth in its geographical context. Uh, you'll see it's right down from Athens, not too far from Athens. The Asia Minor is across the Aegean Sea. Macedonia is just to the north. Um, you'll see Philippi and Thessalonica, um, some biblical cities there. And then, you know, Italy and Rome are kind of over here. So it's just kind of right in the middle of, you know, that known world. Um, let's see. City of Corinth. 
Okay. So, what do you notice about the location of Corinth? Um, we looked kind of big, but even closer. Like, what what sticks? Does anything stick out to you about where it's located? Like, what what might be important? Yeah. What part of the peninsula, though? Yeah. Do you know what this is called? You want something like that is called? It's a geographical term. Starts with an I. An isthmus. Yes. An isthmus. So that's that's probably the first thing geographically that should stand out to us is that it's right on an isthmus, um, and at the right there is the narrowest part of the isthmus where Corinth is. It's about six miles wide, right there. Um, so what does that mean that it's by an isthmus? What what might be um, significant about that? Lots of travel. Yes, lots of travel. All right. So. Um, it was easier for ships to go through here. They would either um, dock right here and they would carry their load over to another ship over here and keep going because this would be six more days over here and then these waters were much more rough. If they could kind of stay in here, the waters were a lot better, kind of make their way up, I think, I think on their way to Rome um, or some part of Italy. Um, so lots of, just a better way Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes they would have ships, they would roll them across the land on, on like um, timbers, you know, uh, tree trunks. They would roll the ship all the way across the isthmus. Um, so a major center for international trade. Uh, you, could get, you could get really valuable things for a pretty good price there because um, they just had so much. And so it's an east-west crossroads, but also notice it's a north-south crossroads as well. Um, it's, it's the funnel between, you know, the northern part of Greece and the lower part of Greece. So ships, all kinds of ships are coming east and west by Corinth, and then all kinds of travel is going north and south through Corinth. So it was um, very much a crossroads city. I'm trying to think of a city like that today. I mean, Istanbul is like on Europe and Asia. It's the only city that covers them both. That's kind of a crossroads city. Toronto kind of seems like a, just kind of a, City sort of like that, where a lot of people are coming into North America through Toronto or New York. It was nicknamed Wealthy Corinth. It had a couple of nicknames, but that was one of them, Wealthy Corinth. So lots of business there, lots of entrepreneurs. Um, there was the Isthmian Games. You guys ever heard of the Isthmian Games? Isthmian Games? All right, so they were the second most popular games in that day behind, of course, the Olympic Games. The Isthmian Games were every two years. Um, they believe because they have like the history of when they occurred. And so we, we believe Paul first got there in um, around 50 AD. And uh, most likely the Isthmian games were either happening or wrapping up when Paul first went there. Um, the head of the Isthmian games was more important in Corinth than the mayor. Like that's how much they wrapped their identity into hosting these Isthmian games. Um, they of course got tons of income from the games and obviously, you know, the trade and all that, just very wealthy city. It was a Roman colony, of course. Um, it was set up by Julius Caesar. Caesar. It had been prominent centuries before in the Greek dynasty. Um, and then when Rome kind of overtook Greece, Corinth was active for a little while, but there was some rebellion in Corinth. And um, so Corinth was sacked by Rome um, to just kind of quell that rebellion. 
But then later, Julius Caesar was like, that's a really strategic location. We need to rebuild that. And so they rebuilt it. It reminds me of Chicago. You know, the Chicago fire happened in the late 1800s. It ended up being actually maybe one of the best things that happened to Chicago. If you, if you um, learn any Chicago history, Chicago just took off after the fire because everyone came to Chicago to try their new architecture. The architecture in Chicago is amazing. And so Corinth had a similar kind of dynamic. It just all of a sudden started growing like crazy um, and building up. And it was just very modernized because of that. Um, it was very well-ordered society, so very easy to assimilate into. So they had a lot of immigrants, a lot of different culture coming there. They had a large theater there at 18,000 seats. They had a large concert hall, just lots of culture. So I often, in my, I just, I'm not a real strong historian on this period of time. So I would, my mind would automatically just think, okay, Athens. In this area, Athens is the most important city, right? You hear about Athens a lot and all of its history. Um, but, you know, you read the, the kind of the commentators, they talk about how Athens was sort of a, his, a, a city kind of reveling in its, its intellectual past. And Corinth was kind of booming. So, so Athens was kind of starting to die a little bit. Um, and, and it is said that Corinth at this time when Paul went there was, was a more important city, more strategic city than Athens. Um, if you think about it, Paul went, uh, we're going to go through Paul's second missionary journey in a second, but something that just caught my eye looking at it again is that Paul comes to Athens, but he doesn't plant a church there. You know, you'd think, you know, he had just planted a church up in Macedonia in Philippi and in Thessalonica, but he, he spends a couple weeks in Athens and never plants a church there. He has some significant, I think some of it's because he didn't have um, Timothy and Silas with him. Timothy and Silas had been held back, um, and Paul was in Athens alone. Um, but then he goes on to Corinth, and um, that's, he plants a church there. So it's just interesting. Again, I, I've always kind of just thought, like, the most significant, one of the most significant moments besides Rome for Paul was being in Athens. But I think Corinth was actually even more significant. All right. The culture of Corinth. So... Here uh, are kind of three ways, three categories kind of to think about when you think about the culture of Corinth in that day. It was an aspirational culture. <clears throat> um, it was an explorational culture. And it was a sexually immoral culture. So let's talk about those things. So aspirational, um, booming city, like I've kind of started to describe already. Its location was strategic. It had the Isthmian Games. Um, but if that wasn't enough, they also had incredible resources in Corinth. Um, they had these uh, things called the Pyrene Fountains, so just uh, an abundance of water supply and a really modernized um, water fountain right downtown. Um, so just drinking water and all kinds of uh, uses of water that, that helped the city flourish. There was a large deposit of marl and clay and light sandstone to be quarried for buildings on large scale. Um, and then they also had larger, uh, harder limestone nearby that they could use for streets. Um, so bricks and pottery and roof tiles. And it was just a very modernized city, beautiful city. It was the wealthiest city in Greece. Um, the aspirational atmosphere was also influenced by what were called the sophists. Has anyone ever heard of the sophists? <clears throat> yeah, so this is going to come into play um, in some of the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. 
Sophists were traveling philosophers and rhetoricians, rhetoric speakers. It's kind of this new kind of rhetoric in that day. And it was, it was aimed at winning speech competitions. So just this high value of, of beautiful speech. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, Aristotle, the emphasis was more like clearly communicating truth. The sophist, it was just about having, you know, captivating truth. It was more about the, the, the pathos than the logos. Um, so more concerned with form than with content. And um, much of chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians makes sense as Paul's response to a church that was overly impressed with this sophist culture. Um, so winning admiration was the sophist's chief aim. Um, speech was an end, not a means to an end. It was an art form. And it made the Corinthian people obsessed with speeches for speech's sake, rather than for communicating truth and motivating someone to action. Um, so Paul's authority as a, an apostle was questioned because Paul was not an eloquent speaker. He was an eloquent writer, as we, we have, although sometimes his writing can be, as, as Peter um, laments, can be even sometimes just too intellectual. Um, but uh, Paul was a better writer than a speaker, and he didn't have that presence like a sophist had. Here's a quote about uh, Corinth, and just notice some of the status language in this quote. Corinth was an aspirational city. Its citizens were looking to advance on the ladder of upward social mobility, and they did this by aspiring to affluence for the sake of establishing their own honor. The core community and tradition of the city culture were those of trade, business, entrepreneurial pragmatism in the pursuit of success. Perhaps no city in the empire offered so congenial an atmosphere for individual and corporate advancement. And then um, here's another quote. To use the terms from American culture, schmoozing, whoops, schmoozing, Massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and dragging rivals' names through the mud all describe what was required to attain success in Corinth. So very, like I said, very entrepreneurial. Uh, just there were so many opportunities for um, business. Very competitive, very prideful. And as a result, kind of under the surface, a very insecure culture, you could say. So one way to describe it is just self-sufficiency. Corinth had everything they needed. Um, you know, you know, there's a passage uh, we'll look at a little in a couple weeks, 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul gives sort of a, a well-known teaching to Corinth. You know, what do you have that you have not received? And that, you know, really cuts to the core of some of the struggles of Corinth, where they were just this self-sufficient society. They had those fountains. You know, they were a safe city, as you will see the, the Acro-Corinth um, was just south of it, which was kind of like a natural citadel for the city. So it was kind of a safety, um, <clears throat> um, hard to attack because of the isthmus and the, the Acrocorinth to the south. Um, they would have been a people who would not have readily asked for help. They could do it themselves. But also self-promotion, so self-sufficiency and self-promotion. Um, and that both of those realities help us see why 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, um, is, is in many ways at the heart of the theology of, of 1 Corinthians. This was a people that was very much turned in on themselves, and Paul and even the church had, had adopted some of that, and he needed to get them to think outside of themselves and, and of others more importantly. Um, 
All of this kind of sense of the culture helps us understand another part of 1 Corinthians. Remember, what, what attitude did Paul say he came to the Corinthians with? Do you remember what attitude? If someone wants to read 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. If you think you kind of know it off the top of your head, what, what attitude did, did Paul come to the Corinthians in? Was he really confident? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And some of that has to do, most believe, with his health. He just wasn't in the best of health. Um, so that's some of the trembling and, and weakness. That's the, that's the weakness. But the fear and trembling, I think, is Paul's honest um, admission that this was an intimidating culture. A very intimidating place. Um, and so how do you think the gospel of a humiliated, crucified Christ went over with this kind of culture? You know, it was an affront. It was an affront to a people who cherished success and who loved winners. And of course, that's Paul has a beautiful chapter on the resurrection, which shows Christ as a winner. Um, and then another interesting thing, given all this, is just the Corinthian pride and who they were and just their pride of them versus kind of any other surrounding city or culture. There is, um, there is a little, usually kind of, there's a line in the first couple of verses of French Corinthians that you would kind of tend to pass over <clears throat> if you hadn't known some of the culture. But... Um, Paul, the opening verses say, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ and our brother Sosthenes. And then he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. And then here's what he says. He says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what's Paul doing there? He's reminding them of the global church. He's reminding them that they are a one church amongst many. And, um, and, and most believe some of what Paul is doing there is kind of challenging their, their pride and their sense of superiority, that the Corinth church is the most important church. And he's reminding them that, no, God is at work in all places. Because Paul doesn't really do that, have those kind of lines as much in his other letters. Um. So this is the road, it's called the road, I don't know how to pronounce it, Lakeum. It's in downtown Corinth. So Dan and Debbie have walked on this road. Uh, like I said, they, they have visited ancient Corinth. Um, this was kind of downtown Corinth, one of the more busy areas. There were lots of shops lining either side. There is a good chance Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, who worked together as tent makers, could have had a shop on this, this very main drag. We don't know, of course, but um, it would not be... Um, you know, uh, far-fetched to believe that they had a shop right there, a great view of the Acrocorinth, which on the top of the Acrocorinth was what? It was the temple to Aphrodite, which we'll talk about in a second. All right, so aspirational culture was also explorational culture, just a very cosmopolitan spirit. Millennials would love this city. Um, very religiously diverse, very pluralistic. It was kind of a melting pot of all different kinds of cultures because of so many people moving there. 
Um, the everyday Corinthian had any number of potential options when thinking about which re religion or belief system might fit him best. It was a cafeteria line of religious practices. So explorational culture. Um, and then sexually immoral. So like I said, the Acre Corinth was right there with the temple to Aphrodite um, on it. Any of you know much about Aphrodite? It's the, that's the Greek name. The Roman name is Venus. Fertility God, yep. So, which means lots, lots of um, prostitution at the the temple of um, Aphrodite. Paul, very specifically in First Corinthians six, calls out some of the uh, the the people in the church because they're engaging in prostitution um, and they're not too concerned about it. And he's trying to help them see how how contrary that is to Christian teaching. Um, engaging in prostitution. Um, so Aphrodite, goddess of love and fertility. Um, that temple has, was not quite as busy at that time as it had been in earlier times, but its effect was still very widespread on the city. They also had the temple of Apollo, a temple to Apollo. I think there were multiple temples to Apollo in the ancient world. Um, but that eventually became a, a center of, of blatant homosexuality. Um, and Paul speaks to that as well in 1 Corinthians. Um, one person said, Corinth was a filthy place filled with filthy minds, ideas, and ideals. Um, another person said, if you could pick a symbol for Corinth, a lot of, a lot of cities will have like a city symbol. A, a very common one is like a tree as a symbol, but theirs could be a bed, you know, just this, this heightened sexuality. Corinthiazomai, the Greek phrase, it's like an adjective, a Corinthiazomai became a verb that meant to commit adultery. A Corinthian girl became a slang term to describe a loose woman. So just gives you a sense of it. Um, but this was also influenced by what's called dualistic philosophy. Dualistic philosophy is kind of like emphasizing the, um, the spiritual world, the, the, the immaterial world over the material world. Um, and so if you have this kind of, this worldview, I guess, where the, the spiritual, the, idea, the world of ideas and thoughts is more important than the physical world, that can, that can lead you in two different extremes. One extreme that some people took was kind of the stoic route, um, denying the body and, and living an ascetic life. But the other extreme, the more popular extreme in places like Corinth was sort of the, the I think it's Epicurean, just like the eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Um, so indulge the body. It's the, the body's not that important, so let's just like do whatever we want with our bodies. Why not enjoy sensual pleasures while one could? And that, that thinking was very common in all of that culture, but definitely in Corinth. Rob? Yes? Do you have the significance of the Temple of Aphrodite being there in Corinth? Or was it a reflection of the culture and their desire to please that? God, no, knowing that it's many like, gods that they would worship, but right. or was it, like, was it, did that sort of spill into the culture because it was there? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Like, which, the, the chicken or the egg, I don't know um, which one came first. Because um, I don't know much about other temples to, to Aphrodite or Venus. Yeah. I'm sure there were more throughout Asia Minor, um, but I know this was one of the more popular ones. Um, so I don't know. It's a great question. Well, this is the long-term rally at the time. Like the 
Greek and Roman culture, like this was kind of important. Yeah. And I think in Corinth, in the past, something similar, like San Francisco or DC, probably, where there's a certain type of people that gather there, but the yep. overall morality was just kind of normal. And I guess Judaism at the time was an old kind of. Yeah, there was Judaism there. They had. That kind of yep. We would consider traditional, but that was a very small. Right. Remnant. Right. Absolutely. Um, so some, one person summarized what Corinth was like. It was uh, at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Um, you know, individualism is another way to summarize life here, which of course reminds us a lot of our own culture. Um, I think Corinth connects with believers so easily because in, in America, especially, I think, because we can relate to some of the, the struggles that they had so, so immediately. So Paul is not walking into some sleepy seaport, um, but a thriving metropolis. Um, it's the most incredible thing that Paul had come upon up to this point in his ministry. This was the most significant um, city that he had gone to yet. Which brings us then to um, the letter of 1 Corinthians, but we'll start with just the church of Corinth, which kind of is the background to the letter. So Corinth, strategic choice for Paul, as we've said. He went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. So just a quick overview of his second missionary journey. Um, so he, uh, it started, you see the starting point is in Antioch. He had been in Jerusalem. So at the end of his first missionary journey, he ended in Jerusalem, which there was the big Jerusalem council. All the major leaders of the church that day had to work out some, some very serious disagreements that they had. And so they, they did that. And um, then Paul and Barnabas part ways uh, after that. They, they start kind of heading back out to, to do more mission work, but then they disagree about what to do about John Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas split, split ways in Antioch. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas start the second missionary journey from Antioch into, I think they go to Tarsus for a bit. But then if you remember, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium were all cities he had planted churches in in his first missionary journey. Um, and so he was going to go and not only encourage them, but he's also going to share with them the news of the Jerusalem Council. And so all the Greek Christians would have been very excited at that news, that they don't have to get circumcised. Um, that was one of the things talked about at the Jerusalem Council. Um, and then in Lystra, they pick up Timothy. That's where, the, that's where Timothy comes into the picture. And he is, is a convert to them, and he joins Paul and Silas. And there they travel, they, they run into some issues here. The, the Holy Spirit prompts them in some of these areas over here, like, no, don't go here, don't go here. So they, they, they keep, the Holy Spirit keeps kind of not letting them settle anywhere in this kind of middle of Asia, and they end up in Treos. And that's where Paul receives a vision, if you remember. Paul receives a vision um, of a man from where? Macedonia, calling to them. So that, this is where Paul first crosses over into Europe. Um, they passed through several towns along the Ignatian Way. Paul spent a lot of his time on the, some of the main roads. Paul wanted to um, do most of his work in some of the more busy, significant places. <clears throat> so I go to Philippi. That's where Lydia is converted. Um, that's where the Philippian jailer is converted. He, Paul is put in prison with Silas, and the Philippian jailer is converted. Uh, then they end up going to Thessalonica, <clears throat> I believe a few weeks or months later. They go down to Thessalonica. They run into some huge issues there with the Jews. The Jews were very inhospitable. 
Um, and they end up getting kind of pushed out of, out of Thessalonica and they go to Berea. Um, over here is that famous passage of the Bereans just were, just loved the scriptures and they, they put anything Paul taught against the scriptures. Um, but the Jews from Thessalonica come to Berea and just kind of rile things up again. And so Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, but some of Paul's friends take Paul out of Berea. They think it's too dangerous for him and they, they ship him down to Athens. So Paul kind of goes by water to Athens and he's in Athens alone. And it's, it's kind of funny, like you kind of get the sense that Paul's just kind of sitting there in Athens waiting for, for, Paul, for Timothy and Silas to come. And it, it just says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the idols of this city. So it's almost like Paul didn't really have an agenda when he got to Athens. He probably did, but it just kind of has this sense of he was just kind of waiting and he was so provoked. So Paul on his own, he gets up and he starts reasoning in the synagogues. Um, and then some philosophers catch wind of his teaching and they want to him to teach at the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill. And he has some famous teaching at Mars Hill. But he's only there a couple weeks at most. Um, and then he heads to Corinth. Um, and then this commentator does a good job of kind of trying to get us into Paul's world. Um, Paul traveled to Corinth from Athens. The comparison would have been startling. Corinth offered advantages which Athens lacked. Athens was no longer either productive or creative, a mediocre university town, while Corinth was a wide open boom town. Paul's journey was one of some 50 miles. By the end of the first day on foot, he probably would have reached Megara. I don't know if it's on there, I don't think it is. But the second day's travel would have been more hazardous until he reached the outer bounds of the Corinthian territory. Soon Paul would encounter jostling crowds, the paved roads, and the traces of the Isthmian games of uh, 49 AD. Finally, he would take the Lycaeum Road, which I showed you earlier, past markets and shops to the Forum. He would have passed the Temple of Asclepios, the Fountains, and the Triumphal Arch. In the Forum, he would have seen imposing administrative offices on the south side and offices, shops, and booths on the north. Traders, tourists, craftspeople, street hawkers, officials, messengers, slaves, and householders who would have thronged the streets and forum at busy times. If Paul's first preaching was in weakness, with much fear and trembling, it is possible that Paul arrived in poor health. At all events, he soon began spreading the gospel focused on who? Christ crucified. Choosing to renounce the audience-pleasing cleverness and rhetoric that so many in Corinth would have preferred. He settled in with fellow Christians, Aquila and Priscilla, who shared the same trade. Communicating the gospel as he plied his trade in their com combined shop and workshop, although presumably also at the market, at the fountains, and elsewhere. So just, I, I, I like that. It kind of got you kind of walking with Paul into Corinth. Um, so Corinth is in southern Greece. Uh, there's a story of Corinth and Acts of, of Paul coming to Corinth. So I'm going to read that if you want to look at Acts 18. So he has just, he's just had the famous Mars Hill sermon in Acts 17. Then Acts 18 is Paul in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. This is uh, Acts 18, verse 1. And now verse 2. And Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to what? To leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so they finally come down and joined Paul there, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. I love this. His house was right next to the synagogue. So he gets kind of, he's, he's, wipes his hand in the synagogue and he goes right next door to a, a guy who's a much more reasonable, uh, much more open to Christianity. So verse 8 of chapter 18, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Okay, so the ruler of the synagogue actually did believe in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. So that, that gives you a little insight into Paul, right? Do not be afraid. Maybe Paul is struggling with fear here in this intimidating Corinthian culture. And he's had some, some wins, but also some discouragements. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of um, Acacia, I don't know how to say that, um, I have a cool thing about Gallio in a second. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And they believe that this is the location where Paul was in front of Gallio, that, that building right there is like one of the places where Gallio would have, um, whoops, would have um, sat on a seat. And Gallio drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. All right, so a <clears throat> um, couple things there. So it says he stayed for 18 months in Corinth, so by far the longest stay of his second journey. It almost seems like, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like Paul had Corinth sort of as his destination for his second missionary journey. All the other places, he only stayed a couple weeks or months at most, but he stayed over a year and a half. Um, he's helped by Priscilla and Aquila. Um, it's possible that Stephanus and his household were the first converts. Um, 1 Corinthians 16 talks about them. Um, Gaius and Crispus were also among early converts. And then it says in chapter Acts 18, 18, which I just read, that after that he stayed many more days. So it was longer than a year and a half, actually, that he stayed there. It could have been up to two years. But then he sailed to Ephesus and then on to Caesarea, and they visited the church in um, Jerusalem before going back to Antioch. So... After Corinth, he goes to Ephesus for a while, and then back down Jerusalem, and then back up to Antioch before he starts his third missionary journey. But the third missionary journey is important because there, in the third missionary journey, he spends the most time in Ephesus. He spends almost three years in Ephesus. And it's while he's in Ephesus on his third missionary journey that he writes 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, shows that he wrote it from Ephesus. Most believe that at some point, so Apollos comes to Corinth 
um, after Paul, and it's believed Apollos takes over the church. And if you remember, Apollos was a very good speaker, unlike Paul, which think about their culture, the sophist culture. They love Apollos, and that's where there's some of this tension and early in 1 Corinthians of some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Peter. It's all about, you know, some follow, um, you know, Tim Keller, may he rest in peace. Um, John Piper, you know, today, we, we all, Christians are always doing that, you know, celebrities. Um, and Paul actually wrote a letter to Corinth. <clears throat> Apollos most likely had visited Paul in Ephesus briefly and given some concerning news of how the church was going. Paul actually wrote his, so what we have as 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. It's his second letter to Corinth. He, he mentions a previous letter. Um, and then there's a third letter, and then 2 Corinthians in our Bible is actually 4 Corinthians. There's, there's four total letters to Corinth that we know of. Do we, do we know the context of the missing No. We don't. I mean, he, he mentions the first letter in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, which gives us some context, which we'll get to when we get to chapter 5. And then I think in 2 Corinthians, it gives a little context of the third letter. <clears throat> um, and then after Apollos, he gets more news from Corinth. He gets an oral report from what is called in 1 Corinthians 1, 11, Chloe's people. Um, not only had they misunderstood his first letter, as you can imagine, there were also divisions of whose teaching to follow, there was rivalry, there was competition. Um, Corinthian culture, I haven't really gotten into this yet either, but as you can imagine, had a, a problem with class distinction, just classism, and, some of, and that was influenced by Rome. Um, and some of that was creeping into the church as well that Paul had to, had to push against. <clears throat> and then, of course, they were plagued with serious problems of sexual immorality and social snobbery, which the uh, letter addresses. So we have this oral report from Chloe's people, but then um, we, we see in 1 Corinthians 7 that he also got another letter from the church in Corinth. Um, and, you could, and that letter, we can tell from the letter of 1 Corinthians that the, the letter from the Corinthian people displayed considerable theological confusion about marriage, about divorce, about celibacy, about food offered to idols, about gifts of the spirit, about participation in pagan religions, about order within their corporate worship, and the bodily resurrection of Christians. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it begins, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the rest of 1 Corinthians from chapter 7 on, he's replying to that letter. So he replies to the oral report first, and then he replies to the letter. Um, the letter to the church of Corinth kind of combines his responses to the oral report and the letter. All right, so we got only a couple more minutes, and I'm pretty much almost done. <clears throat> so here's kind of a breakdown of what he goes into. There's an introduction and main themes, the first couple verses. There's divisions over Christian preachers in the first couple chapters. There's a report of sexual immorality, and there's legal wrangling in chapter 5 and, and 6. And then there's three issues from a Corinthian letter in 7 to 11. There's divisions over corporate worship, the futility of faith that the dead are not raised, chapter 15, the collection for the saints, and the travel plans. And then closing admonitions. And it is a crime that we are only spending 12 weeks in this amazing letter. <clears throat> so it will feel a little rushed at times. So the next two weeks, Murray is going to be teaching us. I'm excited for that. He's going to go from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Good luck. Good luck. So we'll see how that goes. And then we'll do chapter 4. And then um, uh, we're going to have watch a... There's a guy who's done a great video series on First Corinthians. We're going to watch his stuff on chapter 5 and the part, first part of 6. And I'll teach on 6. And then we'll have two weeks off where we'll all be together upstairs for um, a, an update from the General Assembly this summer and from Matt Newkirk. 
and then we'll kind of go through and you'll see some of the, they'll be kind of team taught between me and Murray mostly and then Mike Newkirk will teach one and Steve Welsh will teach one as well. That's it. Any, any questions? Any comments? Yeah. I was curious, I know in the end of Acts, his long trip to Rome, they kind of go into some of the detail on that. I know the historians could probably tell you right away. I don't know, but a long time, a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, I'll let you all go, get your kiddos and all that. Yes. You were unaware of that. He died this week. Yeah. He died um, on Friday, I believe. He had been struggling with pancreatic, pancreatic cancer for years. And then it just took a turn for the worst. Um, 